Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. Today, the story of a person who left Wall Street to start making investments of his own. They told me, you're insane to do this. You'll make more money if you stay here than anywhere else. They were really rude to me. They could, you know, they basically said, we will go out of our way to make your life as difficult as we can possibly make it for you. After making billions in the financial world, he gave it up, turning his focus to advocacy. Getting the right energy solutions will be part, it's still the same mission, but it's never going to be separable from prosperity, job creation, health, justice in our society. And it shouldn't be. Now, this Stanford alumnus is trying to convince the highest levels of government to do the right thing. People in Congress and his own administration know that this president is a clear and present danger, who's mentally unstable and armed with nuclear weapons. And they do nothing. On today's episode of Stanford Pathfinders, president of NextGen America, Tom Steyer. Here's your host, Howard Wolf. Stanford has a long and rich history of alumni who have achieved wonderful success in their chosen professions. Tom Steyer, an alumnus of Stanford's Graduate School of Business, is an icon in the investment world. After stints on Wall Street, he founded Farallon Capital in 1986 and then built it into one of the largest hedge funds in the world. In 2012, Tom sold his stake in Farallon and left the firm to devote himself to the public welfare through advocacy. In so doing, he founded what is now known as NextGen America, a nonprofit organization that acts politically to prevent climate disaster, promote prosperity, and protect the fundamental rights of every American. Tom, welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. Thanks for joining us. Howard, it's great to be here. So you were raised in New York City. <laughs> your dad was a Jewish attorney with, who worked at a nationally known law firm, while your mom was an Episcopalian who taught remedial reading at a jail in Brooklyn. So here's the question. Which parent are you most like and why? Well, I'd like to—my mother was much more of a rebel. And so I'd like to think that I have her courage because— I really respect people who are willing to put it all on the line for what they believe, which my mother, if you knew my mother, That's she, who was she was always willing to put it all on the line. And you're doing that for right what now. she believed. And so I hope that I can do that. So elementary school in New York, high school at Andover. Exeter. Thank Exeter, you. Exeter, sorry. Oh, my gosh. I will be forever <laughs> painted with that if brush. A- <laughs> and college at Yale. Yep. Right? And so then you came out west. Was it the west that beckoned, or was it the Stanford Graduate School of Business? 
Well, Howard, you know my brother Jim, who's a Stanford undergrad. And so when I was applying to graduate school, Jim called me up and he said, you're going to Stanford. We're not discussing it. I don't want to hear anything about it. You're going to Stanford. If you don't like it, leave. And notwithstanding the feistiness of your mother that was drawn down into your blood, you listened to your older brother and said, okay, I'll go to Stanford. <laughs> well, Jim has a lot. If you know Jim, you know he has a lot of that feistiness. <laughs> and he was saying, I'm your big brother. I know what you need. Let's, you know, just shut up. He thought I'm doing he, this for you. He thought the Stanford vibe would match well with you. Yeah. He wanted me to see that there was a life outside the Eastern Corridor. So what was the thing about the Stanford Graduate School of Business experience that most surprised you? I mean, it is very much not Yale. I would say the thing that I enjoyed most about Stanford is the thing that I enjoy most about California and the West Coast as a whole is the optimism that a sense of we can do it and we're not going to be pretentious about it. It doesn't necessarily mean that we think we're oh so great, but the fact of the matter is we can go into a garage with our friends and change the world and we're going to do it. So the pioneering spirit of the West. Yeah, really looking and thinking we can do it. It's going to be fun. And I still give an awful lot of credit to Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard for having that sense of a very egalitarian society, a very meritocratic society, but a society where people dream big dreams and went after them really hard, but in a very nice way. And a society where it's okay to fail as long as you fail forward. Yeah. I just love that. That you know, And maybe some of it has to do, honest to God, with the sunshine. <laughs> you know, because you get up. So the weather factor. Like in 2008, Howard, so a friend of mine called me up. I'm obviously living on the way in California. And a friend called me up from New York and said, during the financial crisis, sure. how is everything in California? And I said, I know you're not going to understand this, but in California, if you can afford a bicycle, it can be a really good day. And he goes, no, 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 no. I'm asking you about the financial crisis. How is everyone reacting to the financial crisis? This is a guy who worked on Wall Street. And I said, Dave, I'm just telling you, in California, if you can afford a bicycle, it can still be a really good day. And I realized he didn't believe what I was saying. But the truth was that in California, you may get knocked down, but you're going to get up and you're not going to get super depressed about it. You're going to keep going. So after business school, you went back into the Wall Street world. You went to Goldman Sachs, and then you ended up starting your company. And so you left to create Farallon Capital, and you based that out here on the West Coast. What was it that attracted you to the world of investing? I mean, this has been your iconic success. I world you know, I still love investing, even though I don't do it anymore. I haven't done it for the last five years. First of all, I love puzzles. Investing is basically a infinite variable puzzle. I'm, fin- I'm, I'm good abs- with two variables. Yeah. You just said infinite variable. Okay. It is infinite variables. I'm incredibly obsessed with how economic slash political slash social systems work. Really interested in that. Very interested in how human behavior works within organizations. So all the stuff that I learned about at Stanford Business School, I'm really fascinated with. And in investing, you get to actually take an action and see what happens and you can see how it's going. So how old were you when you started Farallon? I think I was 28. 28 years old. That's pretty audacious, right, at that age to start a firm that is going to end up being that size. You know, I had a feeling, and I I thought this was true. 
I thought, I have a skill or I don't have a skill at investing. If I have a skill at investing, I can work at a big firm and do fine. Or if I'm, it turns out I don't have any talent and any skill, they'll fire me. And I can go out on my own. And if it turns out I'm good at this, then I can have my own firm. And if I'm not any good at it, then the investors will fire me. <laughs> you're going to get fired. I have way the same well. downs. Everyone's <laughs> like, but the downside of failing is like, oh, trust me, the partners of Goldman Sachs, if I do a bad job, will fire me in a heartbeat. So I never felt like I was taking more risk. I thought I was getting more upside. And I wasn't doing it for the money. You know, when I left Goldman, that was before people ever left Goldman. It was sort of a lifetime job for most right. people. The ultimate and partnership. When I was leaving, I'd had a horrible fight with my boss. And the people who were trying to convince me to stay said, you're going to make more money here than you're ever going to make anywhere else. And I was like, that's not why I'm doing this. I'm not doing this to make more money. I want to do this. You want to build something. I want to be on my own. I don't want to spend my time. But then after 27 years of building this amazing hedge fund, Farallon, you leave to go pursue other activities, advocacy and such. And you're focused at, initially at the environment is sort of your main focus in community development. How difficult was it to leave this company that you spent nearly 27 years building, cash out, leave the firm, and go focus entirely on something else? I'd been trying to do it for eight years. Oh, you had it was the easiest decision of all time, Howard. The fact of the matter was, I thought there was something really wrong, and I felt extremely lucky that I would have a chance to do what I think all Americans want to do, which is to participate in creating a better society here in the United States. Both my parents did that. My grandparents did that. This has been going on for hundreds of years. And I think what I chose to do, I mean, I gave up a job I really liked, but the fact of the matter is I think about what my father was asked to do and my uncles were asked to do in World War II or my grandfather was asked to do in World War I and back and back and back. And I think I get a chance to try and make a contribution. And any one of those people, if you'd offered them my way of making a contribution, would have taken it in a heartbeat. So this was a simple decision. Really easy. And your wife, she was on board? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. You Look, met her at the GFB? Stanford. Yeah, Catherine Stanford. is the CEO of our community bank. She works harder than anybody. And so I don't think there's any question. For me, people may look at me and say, why are you doing this? But I look at everybody else and say, why are you not, not doing, doing this? this? So Next Gen America. It was Next Gen Climate for a period of time. And now it's morphed into Next Gen America. Tell us what that is, what's the mission, how do you operate, and what's the goal? So the mission statement is to act politically, to prevent climate disaster, promote prosperity, and protect the fundamental rights of every American. That's a now, pretty when, broad, audacious it is broad. mission statement. And I'll tell you why that's true. When I was still working at Farallon, when I was involved in some of the statewide propositions— but just part-time while I was working full-time in investing, I had a sense that climate and clean energy would be like World War II for America, that we had an existential threat to our society, that we would, as a country and a society, pull together regardless of party affiliation, geography, income level, race or ethnicity. 
we would use it the way we used World War II to accomplish a great goal, make ourselves proud of ourselves, become richer and healthier. And that we would be a thing that would pull all Americans together into doing the right thing and depending on each other and trusting each other and then doing something where when it was over, we'd always say, we did that. And all people needed was to be educated on And facts. I thought, yeah, that's what I thought. I was wrong. 100%. Yeah. It's the most partisan issue in the United States of America. Do facts matter in discussions about the environment? Depends who you're talking to, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly so do. So what do you learn? I mean, you, you put so, a lot so, of energy behind this. And so what I think now and the reason is I believe that getting the right energy solutions will be part – it's still the same mission. But it's never going to be separable from prosperity, job creation, health, justice in our society. And it shouldn't be. And so it's a political problem and we will not solve it without connecting it to the hu local human issues in our society, nor should we. The coalition that has to solve this problem in the United States politically is very broad. And you can't silo issues. You can't go and say, we need to deal with this issue and only this issue, and we'll get to all these other issues. It's all interconnected. It's one big issue. It's one big coalition. And unless we're talking about what matters to people today in their communities— with themselves and their families and the people they love, you're not really talking to them. So you've put a tremendous amount of your personal fortune behind this issue. And you used the word just a moment ago, existential threat, that term, existential threat. So tell us what you think the true threat is. 15, 25, 50 years out, what could the world look like if we don't focus on climate let me, change? Let me first do one thing, finish that last question, just so you know. Okay. Our organization is a huge grassroots organization. In 2016, with our partners, we knocked on 12 and a half million American doors. Wow. We were on 370 college campuses, and we registered 807,000 people in the state of California and about 350,000 people outside the state of California. We are all about voter-to-voter -voter contact, citizen-to-citizen -citizen conversation to register, engage, citizens and voters so they'll participate in our democracy in the broadest and most just 12 way. million households. I mean, there must be no more than, what, 100 million households in America? Yeah. So and we were in every state. But think about it. 807,000 people registered in the state of California. That's by far the biggest registration drive in the history of this state. Total grassroots. Program. We were on more campuses than anybody. The Clinton campaign tried to be on 230 campuses. We were on 370. When you talk about the existential threat... It's very hard to know how the future is going to unfold, how a system that is the entire world is going to evolve. And you can look at the projections that the UN makes, right? and you can know that they're wrong. The only thing you know about those projections is they're definitely wrong. It's a projection. Yeah. It's a guess. So by definition, it's sure. wrong. Take, for example, the rate at which the sea will rise. The way that climate change gets expressed in the natural world to a large extent has to do with water. Floods, droughts, storms, sea rise, you know, the melting of glaciers. There were supposed to be no snow on Mount Everest in 2100. That's not possible. So when you look at the scientific projections, in 2014, we were doing a big study about what the impacts would be on health and growth of climate disaster. 
And one of the things is about sea rise because, you know, a lot of the United States and a lot of the world is, you know, susceptible to cities being swallowed up by a rising sea. And In both, they were basically yeah. two to three feet by 2100. And I was like, that just, oh, gosh, that just doesn't seem right. And they said, well, you're not a scientist. I said, I'm not. It just seems really low. They're like, no, nah, Tom, seriously, you don't know what you're talking about. They had a 1 in 20 chance in 2014, three years ago, of a four-foot rise. By 2016, the base case was four feet. If you read the science last week, people are saying that even slowing down by 50% the rate of deterioration in the Antarctic glaciers, we could be talking about 11 feet. And the impact of that is catastrophic. Absolutely. And when we listen to the scientists, they went from two to three feet to 11 feet in three years. So when you look at their projections, I look at it and I just say, look, we know it can be terrible. If you're running an enterprise or you have a house, you don't risk the house burning to the ground. You don't risk the enterprise going out of business. And given that we know that moving to clean energy actually will make us richer, will make us grow faster, will produce millions of net jobs, that it will make increase our health dramatically in addition to avoiding a huge potential threat. My question is just kind of that you have to ask yourself, why would anyone not want to do something that's so obviously but isn't one right? of the arguments that climate change happens irrespective as to human action, right? That's not an argument based in fact. I mean, you could it's say— It's an argument that's made. People say that, but not scientists— Right. You know, people say, I want to have my opinion. It's like, okay, do you do your own brain surgery? You have an opinion about which lobe to cut? Go right ahead. You have no idea what you're talking about. People always quote this, 97% of scientists think that it's happening and it's caused by human behavior. I have yet to meet the 3%. I have yet to find a peer-reviewed paper from a scientist saying, oh, this is not true. I haven't found one. They have hundreds of papers saying it is true, and talking about the ramifications of it. So NextGen starts out focused almost exclusively at climate issues, and then it expands. Always coupled with prosperity, because we've always said there's no way to do this in a vacuum. This has always got to be something that's going to promote equality, jobs, better pay, and health. We've always thought that. At Stanford, we would say that the solution is interdisciplinary in nature. You know, Stanford's big thing is about putting together departments, that if you can get the physicist meeting with the structural engineer, that's when you really get something. And that's true here, too. You cannot separate this from the deep issues in our society that are also begging to be solved. Can't do it, shouldn't do it, and we're never going to try and do it. This is Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight 121. More with founder and president of NextGen America, Tom Steyer, coming up. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with founder and president of NextGen America, Tom Steyer. You are reported to have spent more than $20 million in the past several months on ads that call for the impeachment of President Donald Trump. So let me ask you two questions. Why'd you do this? And what do you hope to achieve by this campaign? Well, the reason I did it is I feel that he, the president, is a clear and present danger to the American people. 
which is a line specifically from one of your ads. What we said in those ads is what we believe. I, I said it and I believe it. I believe that he is putting the safety and health of the American people at risk and that it's urgent and that he has clearly met the criteria for impeachment. We're in a crisis and we need to get rid of him. We knew before we ever started that the political establishment would not go for this. We knew that from day one. Well, Democratic leaders have opined that they don't like this campaign either. Absolutely. They all know he's unfit for office. They all know he's a threat to the American people. They're assuming nothing will really happen between now and whenever, and that somehow it's not politically advantageous to pursue this. And our attitude is, actually, it's incredibly important that we speak the truth and do the right thing. And we're trying to give the American people a voice so that they'll sign up and together you have to listen to the voice of the American So people. they sign this petition and you collect certain number. You're up in the – what's the number now? 2.9. 2.9 million signatures. And then is there a goal, a certain number? And then after that, you'll take it to Congress? I'm just Our trying to original goal was to get to a million signatures. I think you've exceeded that number. We have. And, it's, and we're still going. We feel that this is much more about changing the whole conversation. You have to listen to the American people. You guys think that decisions are made in Washington, D.C., regardless of what the American people think. And we're saying, absolutely not. The American people think we're in a crisis. We, they think it's urgent. You don't want to do anything about it. You want to keep your head down and say nothing. And we think that that's wrong. So once you get that last signature, then what do you do? We believe that we need more direct democracy, a the voice through the American people. We're a grassroots organization. We're always about the broadest, most just, most complete American democracy. And that's what we're doing here. It doesn't surprise me that the people who want to concentrate power in their offices don't like the idea that the American people should have a voice. Why would that be surprising? So Stanford alumni on both sides of the aisle keep on asking me the same question over the past year about you, and that is as follows. Are you going to run to be the next governor of the state of California? And lately the question is, understanding that a very successful business person has ascended to the presidency of the United States, would the presidency ever be something that would attract you? Or do you think that you are more effective, more impactful, bringing together a grassroots program like you're doing with Next Gen America? One of the things that's true in politics in the United States, we've gotten to a place where no one believes that anyone is just acting straightforwardly. I mean, I had someone ask me the other day, give me the political reason for what you're doing and then give me the real reason. I was like, wow, there's an implication there that everyone is lying. Let me say why it's selfish for me to be doing exactly for what I'm doing. I am 60 years old. I would like to think that I have had, am having, and will have a meaningful life, that I'm actually trying to do something with my life while I'm on this planet, that it would stand for just the way my parents did, that they were trying to, you know, move the ball forward in a good way, and that's what I'm trying to do. So I look at this and I think the grassroots stuff we're doing, the petition for impeachment, speaks for itself. It's something that I think is the right thing to do, and there doesn't have to be, and there isn't some 
underlying secret agenda. agenda. You know, when we started working on climate, all of these right-wing people were accusing me that I was doing it so that I could make money on my clean tech investments. I was like, seriously, that is probably the single stupidest thing I have ever heard someone <laughs> say. And so when all these people who don't know me tell me why I'm doing something, it's like, no, we think this is really important and honest to do. We think the American people are scared by this president. We think they're at risk. We think that our kids are at risk in a serious way. We think that we're in a crisis, and we're insisting that elected officials start to act. But let me come back to that same question I just asked you, which you did a very effective job of sort of answering. So let me be very, very blunt. Do you better achieve your mission, your goals, that legacy that you want to leave by doing what you're doing with Next Gen America, or do you do that as an elected official? I ask that question all the time. What is the thing I can do that will have a differential impact that somebody else isn't doing, that's changing the equation? Not so I can have a great resume to oh, present. No, no. And I wouldn't suggest otherwise. Guys. No, no, but I'm saying. I, I know you want to make so a difference. So the question is, which is the one? And the answer is, I don't know. And if you'd said to me four weeks ago when we started this petition, where is this going to go? I would have been entirely wrong. And so I look at this as a question that I ask all the time with the facts changing all the time. And I know that there are deadlines and I have to make decisions. But the fact of the matter is, it's a question of, if I do that, then what is the likelihood of having a positive outcome? What is the difference between that outcome and what happens if I don't do it? Right. In terms of the impeachment stuff, in 2010, when George Schultz and I co-chaired the No on 23 campaign, there was no one else who wanted that job. There was no one who said, I want to spend a bunch of time and money and go around the state and try and whip up enthusiasm across the board against, uh, on behalf of our clean energy laws. That was considered a huge loser. Trust me, there's no one in the United States who said, oh, impeach the president, I'll take that on, we'll do a petition. That'll be my job. There was something that had to be done, I thought, that no one else wanted to do so that it was a differential impact. And now that you see the power, 2.9 million signatures, perhaps the best place that you can play is as the leader of that grassroots I effort. Don't, I don't honestly know. You don't and know that's yet. My que- you know, it's like this is over the last four weeks. The information is different. So well, I don't know. I know there are deadlines, and I'm sitting here looking at all the things, including ones we haven't discussed, trying to figure out. If you look, though, at me leaving Goldman Sachs, no one ever left Goldman Sachs. They told me, you're insane to do this. You'll make more money if you stay here than anywhere else. They were really rude to me. They could, you know, they basically said, we will go out of our way to make your life as difficult as we can possibly make it for you. And my attitude is, okay. You've been a contrarian since you were in your 20s. People were looking at old models. And people are looking at old models here too. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate Howard, it. What a pleasure. I've known Tom for a number of years. So I was fascinated by the opportunity to actually interview him because we were able to go deeper than I've ever had in terms of a conversation with him. I was struck by the passion with which he approaches his life's work. Here's a guy that could have easily stayed with this firm that he had started, Farallon, for the rest of his career. But he stopped, he cashed out, he left the firm and focused all of his energy on solving problems that he sees facing our country and the world and the passion with which he is approaching this, not only with his own emotions, but his own checkbook, is really quite stunning. 
And I believe every word he says that he's doing it because he cares deeply about this country, this world, and the people that inhabit it. Thanks for joining us on Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the Sirius XM app.